This is the Masters of Cinema cast. My name is Joachim. And my name is Tom Jennings. And this is actually our 50th episode, and uh, I couldn't think of a better way to celebrate this than having on such an esteemed guest. She's educated at the University of Oxford. She worked at the BFI for many years before taking up her current position as Professor of Film and Media Studies at the Birkbeck uh, at University of London. And she's also the director of the Birkbeck Institute for the Moving Image. Laura Mulvey, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much, Joachim and Tom. Can I just make one correction to your very nice introduction? Yes, please do. Former director. Former director, okay. The Birkbeck Institute for the Moving Image. Okay. As I'm moving towards retirement, I'm handing over my various responsibilities to my colleagues. So how long ago did you step down as director? I stepped down last July. Last July, okay. And I'm moving on to a fractional uh, point to contract at the end of March. Okay. I remember coming across your essays, I think it was first year studying films uh, at university. And uh, it was a bit daunting because you were placed together with film critics like uh, Metz and the whole psychoanalytic semiotic era, which kind of daunted me. And it was also kind of looked down upon where I was studying. So I never really headed off in that direction until I started studying psychology later on in life. And where were you studying at that time? Uh, I studied in Trondheim in Norway. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I, I have with me right now um, the, the, the first film textbook I ever bought for university. And it's film and theory. Um, edited by Robert Stamm and Toby Miller. And the very first uh, course I did was Theories of Textual Analysis. And this is day one of university. The 18-year-old me um, was introduced <laughs> to visual pleasure and narrative cinema. And I have the book with me now. And we, we actually watched um, the film Morocco twice in one day, in fact. And then we went over um, Laura's essay. And it vaguely amused me when Joachim said that he'd invite you on the show because my initial reaction was, oh, my God. Because I've actually got um, my annotations here. And I'm just going to read a quick passage from it, which was the beginning of the second um, paragraph, which was the paradox of phallocentrism in all its manifestations is that it depends on the image of the castrated woman to give order and meaning to its world. And my annotation consists of an arrow pointing to the margin and three question marks that get progressively bigger. <laughs> and I want to excuse my 18-year-old self um, for, that, for, for that annotation, because at the time I seem to remember thinking, what on earth have I signed up for? I've only come here to study film because I love films. This was completely new to me. And I think looking back, I, I probably felt... Um, Kind of intellectually inferior to it all, I suppose, would be the word. And then it kind of over the kind of the, the coming modules that we did, it kind of began to kind of seep in, really. And I think it kind of completely changed the way I thought about films and the way I looked at films. And it was it was interesting to go from being kind of just what well, I'd say a casual observer to someone who now kind of digests films in a completely different way. So thank you for that, Laura. But I will still maintain <laughs> at the time, at the tender age of eighteen, this was. I think um, students should be warned that the essay is a manifesto. Yeah. It's it's supposed to shock. It's supposed to 
leave question marks scribbled in the margin. You know, three question marks, pretty good. <laughs> they get progressively bigger as well. The last one is massive, so I think I must have been really confused yeah. by that. Uh, where were you studying? I, I was at Sheffield Hallam University, and oh. um, so yeah, it was. It was it's, it's an interesting. I remember it was just really strange because going back and we would we would watch films frame by frame, and I was lucky enough to have a VHS recorder. I know I'm showing my age there that didn't go all fuzzy when you paused it, so you could jog shuffle through the frames, and just looking at films completely differently. And it was, it, especially Morocco, I mean, obviously we watched it twice. I've actually gone back to it quite recently, actually, and it, it, it took me back to those days. And it was interesting because we would kind of, I, I can't watch Die Hard anymore without thinking that it's actually a love story between John McClane and the policeman, Al. And it was on over Christmas, and it kind of took me back to these textual analysis uh, lectures that we used to have and I actually remember I laughed out loud actually because there's a scene in that film where they're discussing taking their children to the jungle gym and <laughs> I remember we were watching it in the class and again, this isn't what we Die Hard's a man film and it's about guns and stuff it's not about this kind of homoerotic relationship and that was that was the kind of the I suppose the fun side of textual analysis is that we got to kind of digest these films in a completely different way well I'm very impressed that you watched Morocco twice in one day I think you must have had an excellent tutor. It, it was, um, it was uh, Sheldon Hall, I seem to remember. Sheldon was a graduate of uh, University of East Anglia and uh, certainly came out of a very good, um, very, very good uh, background. Yeah, no, definitely. He was, he was pretty great, Sheldon. Yeah, I think he, I think he was, um, I think he was, he was, he's, he's like, he was so keen about, kind of widescreen cinema as well and kind of uh, blockbusters from the 1950s that used to kind of make us watch. He managed to get hold of a 70 millimeter copy of Cartoon, I seem to recall, which was a pretty great uh, viewing experience. Wow, yeah. Where did your kind of interest in film studies start? How did you fall into that uh, vein of uh, academia? Well, it's important to remember that when I wrote Physical Pleasure and Narrative Cinema, I wasn't anywhere near film academia, which didn't really exist even. Mm. And so far as it did exist, it didn't have anything to do with me. Um, so I came out of a 1960s... Well, I'd always, I suppose, been... I'd been brought up to be a bit of a film fan all my life. But my immediate formative background was really uh, following 1950s Cahiers du Cinéma in 1960s London. So there's a bit of a time lag there, if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, uh, we were watching all the movies and valuing the directors that the Kaiji cinema had valued in the 50s and tracing their films. So that was my background, just watching movies, tracing them in London, going to Paris... Uh, very influenced by Peter Wallen and his engagement with Hollywood cinema. So this was very much a Hollywood cinema, traditional cinephile, hmm. um, 60s. And that was changed rather by um, my encounter with uh, the women's movement. And it seemed quite logical to bring the two things together, everything that I knew about Hollywood and my new ways of thinking about film through psychoanalytic theory, etc., etc. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote Visual Pleasure as a, you know, as a polemical, non-academic, 
piece. And then I suppose uh, I became an academic because film studies opened up and various people started asking me to do seminars. And finally, I went to work at Bullmersh College, which is now part of the of part of Reading University. Mm. And so that had a very important influence on me too. There, just as Tom was saying about Sheffield, very, very strong emphasis on textual analysis and watching films several times, analysing the mise-en-scene, frame by frame, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to, like, before film studies, so this was, this was more like a what you would call cultural studies today, where you are, you're kind of drawing from different, uh, different aspects, from psychoanalysis and from the feminism movement to shed light on films. Uh, was this something that others were doing as well, or did you kind of find this on your own? Well, we were just film fans. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't any sense of having any academic, background or point of reference, not cultural studies or anything. We were just um, people who went to the cinema a great deal and then started to think about the cinema more politically Mm. rather than just from a purely cinephile point of view. So, and and also I, I think it's important to remember that by the time I encountered the women's movement in the early 70s, the Hollywood cinema that we had loved so much uh, was no longer really... Um, was really a thing of the past. Mm. Uh, it was no longer a current, thriving cinema, which had really died in the... around 1960, I think, the f- film historians say. And by that time, there were many more exciting cinemas like... Uh, avant-garde, Godard, um, new cinemas from the third world. So very different ways of thinking about cinema began to emerge in the early 70s. Mm-hmm. I mean, I suppose it's, it's kind of worth kind of talking because, I mean, you, you, you are a filmmaker yourself, aren't you? And I, I, was, I was saying we spoke briefly on the phone before that um, I normally on a Monday go and treat myself to some films and some music and my purchase this... Um, this Monday was Riddles of the Sphinx, um, directed by Laura Mulvey and Peter Woolen. And, um, yeah, I, I, it was strange kind of like going into it, because the guy who works in the shop is possibly the most knowledgeable person ever about films and music, and I thought, I'll get him this week, because he normally <laughs> engages me in conversation. And he said, oh, it's, it's amazing, that You should see the scene, see the bit where they're driving around the roundabout. <laughs> and I, I was like, and I thought, right, hang on a second, is, is, is he messing with me here? And I got home, and sure enough, there's a rather amazing sequence driving around, around back. And I was thinking, damn it, what can I get him on next week? But no, I mean, so I sort of talk briefly about kind of the, the films that you to interrupt, uh, Tom. Was he interested in the Mike Ratledge music? Well, I would actually, he was, and I would actually say one of the things I loved about it was the Mike Ratledge music. Cause I'm a massive fan of electronic music in general. And yeah, I was, I think that was when he, he did mention the score briefly and uh, it was certainly one of the things that I was taken with by the film. But I need, like I said to you on the phone, I need to watch it again with the commentary on. But uh, yeah, definitely it was my Blu-ray pick of the week. So uh, definitely pick it up. But I mean, I mean, mean, just talk a little bit briefly about kind of the the, the films that you made. When did you kind of um, realise that you wanted to kind of start making films and how did you go about it? I've been thinking about this recently 
and I wrote a short essay a couple of months ago about why Peter and I started to make films, how we came to start to make films. Uh, and it was in the context of um, the question, were we making essay films? And my answer was that we thought of them not as essay films, but as theory films, films about film, thinking about film. And we'd both, we'd written essays, theoretical essays about film, and we were interested in taking the step of wondering whether you could actually turn theories into something that was on the screen itself. But this was only possible because um, the circumstances arose in which it was possible for people like us actually to make experimental films. So that came out of, um, well, the first film we made was enabled really by uh, the film department that Peter was teaching in uh, Northwestern University. And they made it possible for us to use the 60mm equipment there. And then we came back to England and made Riddles of the Sphinx. So... Experiment was in the very much in the air. It wasn't just something that we were doing, but there was quite a, an important movement around experimental film at the time. And again, it was part of a way of bringing a radical politics to representation and images and adapting our love of cinema to a cinema that would also be thoughtful and radical or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's, 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 am I right in thinking you made a film was in 2008 as well? That was actually in Iraq or, or have I completely felt of the country? No, not in Iraq, it's in London, but it's, um, it's called 23rd of August, 2008. And I made it two years ago. Um, and it's uh, a single shot, a monologue of an Iraqi friend of mine talking about Iraqi politics and being in exile. And it's particularly a portrait of his brother, Kame. Right. Yeah, so I was looking to try and get hold of some of them. Um, and they're, I mean, they're not widely available, are they, I don't think, at the moment on, on DVD and Blu-ray? Uh, that isn't available at all. Yeah, um, but I mean, I, I, I would say um, for, on the Blu-ray of uh, Riddles of the Sink, there is another film, Queen of the Amazons, as well, which I haven't actually been able to watch that yet. But... That was the first one we made. Yeah, I haven't got around to But I might as well just say at this point that um, uh, I'm very fortunate that the Whitechapel Gallery here in London is going to do a complete retrospective of our films uh, okay. in May of this year. Showing the later films as well. Interesting. I I saw uh, an excerpt of your film, The Riddles of the Sphinx, with the commentary. It's the scene where you are you're filming, you're filming a film strip of the Sphinx, and you're talking about kind of the trying to capture the Sphinx or trying to capture the film in a different format. And I was just thinking about, uh, you also wrote um, this collection of essays, Death 24 Times a Second, um, 
where you write that while technology sim never simply determines, it cannot but affect the context in which ideas are formed. And you go on to say that in kind of in the same way that gender shapes our viewing, you argue that technology also shapes the viewing experience. And obviously this podcast that Tom and I are doing, it kind of grown, it grew out of love for the digital format of Blu-ray and DVD and the availability of these like wonderful films, much which uh, I wouldn't be able to see elsewhere. So what's changing with the technology when we go over to digital from the more physical uh, film strip? I think that's a very difficult question. To my mind, we've gained so much from the digital mm -hmm. that to fetishize uh, celluloid, which seemed to be a, a, a mistake. On the other hand, there's nothing more amazing and breathtaking than seeing, say, Morocco in a good print in the way that it was originally meant to be shown. So there is something about the impact of the original and the original medium mm -hmm. that seems to me to retain an enormous importance. On the other hand, an actual interaction with the film text through that process of stopping thinking repeating, returning, s slowing, etc., uh, etc., et um, allows a film to reveal secrets that one had never really imagined existed. So there's a way in which, as with textual analysis itself, I always say that it's both, on the one hand, it's a distortion of a film to see it slowed down, taken to pieces, fragmented, and in some ways could almost be thought of as an act of violence. On the other hand, it's an act of liberation and of finding things hidden or meanings hinted at which hadn't really ever seen the light of day before. Mm. So a certain amount of ambivalence. Yeah. But, I mean, I deeply welcome the way that the digital has brought films into the public uh, sphere and also allowed films to be analysed, not just by people at universities with their special equipment and their special knowledge, but in a sense bringing textual analysis to a, a much wider constituency. This time around, after reading your comments on that, um, I was kind of more aware of the disjointed nature of watching a film from the 1930s, but being able to pause it and rewind and kind of, kind of scrutinising every image in a way that I imagine they wouldn't be able to fantasise about back in those days. Um, well, I, mean, I would just add to that, and, and let's not forget that the home video market never existed up until the 70s, mm -hmm. we really did it. And it, 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 it always seems strange to me that if a, when films used to come out before home, home video, that was your one chance of seeing them. Yes. Exactly. And it always, it always amazes me when you kind of read film critics from the 40s and 50s and 60s, because it, it basically they talk so um, intelligently about these films on one viewing. 
<laughs> I can't believe they've gone back and watched them. They've been able to watch them so many times over. And like I said before, when I was at university, uh, yeah, we would sit there. We had a, um, a Sting deck, actually, as well. We had some films on 16mm. We could go literally just go through frame by frame. And it, it, it amazes me, you know, because they, they never had that opportunity no, that, we have, that we have now. Sometimes, indeed, they made mistakes. Oh, indeed, yeah. I mean, there's a... I, I always, I always feel the one film that got completely trashed, and it's my my cinematic uh, one of my favorite films ever is Ryan's Daughter by David Lean, and that film got absolutely butchered. Um, I seem to recall, and I always think it's a shame that it, 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 it ever got better with any more times I've watched it for me. But I mean, it seems to. Uh, which film was that? Ryan's Daughter by David Lean. Right. I thought, I thought, for some reason, I've always loved that film, and I seem to remember it being well. I, I read about it being absolutely savaged at the time, and I think, I, I think, it, to me, it's got better with age. The more times I've certainly watched it, but it's a, uh, it, it's strange. And like, of, of like, you know, I'm saying. I mean, it's, it's that we have the home format, and you can go and pick up Riddles of the Sinks. I don't ever recall this being on VHS or anything like that, or you know, wildly available and clear. You know, BFI, you know, they've put together that wonderful package to put us out. So it's. I think it's, we're lucky, I always think we're quite lucky to live in the time that we do. Absolutely, yes. I was kind of wondering, because uh, La Signora di Tutti, that was your pick for this show, Laura. So if you could like talk about um, how you kind of came into Ophuls and especially why you chose this film for this week's show. I've been thinking a lot about Max Ophuls recently. I've been giving lectures on him and mainly concentrating on three other films, his 1933 German film, Liebelei, and putting that together with his, probably his one of his most famous films, Letter from an Unknown Woman, made in, uh, in Hollywood in the late 40s, and that with Madame Dieu, which a lot of people consider to be his absolute masterpiece, made in France in the in 50. I became very absorbed in those three movies. And I remembered La Signora di Tutti well from the old days, as you pointed out a few minutes ago, when one could only see a film once if there was a season of a director. Hmm. One had the opportunity to see the film. And I must have seen La Signora di Tutti possibly at a National Film Theatre retrospective of Offals or something. And it had made a deep impression on me. And I hadn't seen it for many years. Uh, and then when it came out on the Criterion edition, uh, I saw it again and started to think about it. And I was also at the same time um, thinking about... Max Offels' last film, Lola Montez, uh, and I started, just as I had with the other three films, I put La Signor di Tutti and Lola Montez a bit together. But um, that's really rather by the way. I chose La Signor di Tutti because it kind of jumped out at me from your Masters of Cinema list <laughs> as one of my, not only one of my, I think I've, I think when I've done my sight and sound 10 best list, I think La Signora di Tutti is very often, if not always, there. So it was that. And then also just the 
a fortunate coincidence that it was a film that I've been thinking about a lot uh, recently. And I haven't actually published anything on it, but I've lectured on it quite a lot. Okay. And I introduced a few points about La Signora di Tutti, but otherwise um, it was an opportunity because I haven't, as I said before, just to repeat myself, uh, I haven't, I haven't published anything on, on it, but it's a film I've lectured on and thought about. Mm. So that was really the story. It's interesting that you mention uh, Lola Montes because I'm not all too familiar with uh, Ophel's filmography except Lola Montes, uh, oh. which I've seen on the Criterion Blu-ray. Again, it came out recently. Okay. Yeah, it was, it was a relatively... Um, I, I, I mean, I actually watched the, the Blu-ray... Um, on last Saturday, in fact, actually. Hmm. And um, it, was, it was strange because I had seen Letter from an Unknown Woman at university and I remember being quite taken with it. And it, it was interesting when, when, when Laura said she wanted to talk about Awful Stuff. Been on, I, I realised I actually owned a lot more of these films than I realised. And um, I, I, I've been on a bit of an awful binge watch over the past yeah. week. Yeah, what I mean... I mean yeah. What else have you been watching? Um, I watched uh, La Ronde. Oh, yes. Um, Left from an unknown woman again. Um, there was as well, I think it was Court I managed to pick yeah. up. Um, yeah, um, there's a Blu-ray of that um, circulating, and I, I, won't say where, I won't say where I picked the Blu-ray up from. It wasn't necessarily legal means. I do apologise to the, <laughs> the, the producer that moment. But, um, yeah, I mean, and, and it's interesting because I had... I, there used to be a group that used to meet in Manchester and we would um, talk about films and we would watch each other's kind of um, what each other had been making. And there was a, a, a lady who put a film on that she had made and there was this ridiculously long tracking shot in it. Um, and we we were asking her why it was in there because it didn't seem to serve any purpose. And we went round and round until we... She kind of basically admitted the fact that she had paid a Steadicam operator £400 a day and on that day there didn't seem much for him to do so she'd invented this shot. And we, we were having a bit of a, a laugh about it and she began talking about... Um, filmmakers who she'd been taken with where the with camera movement and she suddenly mentioned Max Offals and he didn't he didn't seem to be someone who I remember being a filmmaker where there's loads of movement in his films so I remember this was a good few years about six years ago and I think I went went back and watched a few of them and I thought oh my god you know this is the camera's constantly moving it kind of completely changed the way I, I went back and watched them again purely from the point of kind of their technical uh, aspects I guess and over the past few weeks, uh, over the past week, sorry, going back and watch them, watching them, I think I've sort of seen them in a completely different light in that I, I don't think I've seen a Max Opel's film over the past week where things end up okay. I watched <laughs> Madame D last night and I thought, oh, this, uh, I've seen it before and I, I couldn't really remember it and I seem to remember last night I was like, oh, this film seems to have started off quite jovial. I think it's going to have a happy ending. And of course, that was cruelly dashed about half past ten last night when you have that final that final duel. But it's been really interesting going back. So it's, I really want to go and watch more of them. I think I'm going to try and pick more of them up. Um, I've certainly had a kind of look online. There seems to be a few floating around on YouTube and 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 whatnot. But it, it's interesting to me because he was not a filmmaker who. I've always been aware of, but I've never really gone into him in this much detail. And it has been quite interesting. I always kind of, I think, Missouri um, Tutte, I think, is probably my favourite one of the ones that I actually own. And I've gone back to, and I said, I think I said um, before we started the podcast, I've watched it three times this week. 
And there always seems to be something in there. And I, I'm pretty certain I found a mistake in it as well, which we'll get to um, at, at a later date, perhaps. But yeah, it, it's been interesting, definitely, seeing this film. And uh, the, the one thing I always find about, about it is that I always forget the beginning when I'm watching this film, which was obviously she's on that table, uh, having tried to take her own life. And it, it always kind of saddens me when the film catches up with itself hmm. and you realise that she's not going to make it. But I think, uh, yeah, it's, it's been an interesting week, I guess. <laughs> that surgical scene, it really looks like something like Frank and I'm a seconds. I was reminded of that with him lying on the table and her kind of like struggling uh seems like she's trying to fight that's when the gas mask is kind of descending onto her face yeah exactly but i mean that that whole opening to the film um i think is 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 quite brilliant because there's so much going on in it mm -hmm. and it, it it's i don't know did, did, it, it's eerily reminiscent i don't, don't have you ever seen the amy winehouse documentary that came out last year yeah that's there's, there's, it's the, the tragedy of that is the yeah. fact that it, there's scenes from that which are so eerily reminiscent of that film, where basically you have this poor girl's, the people who are supposed to have her best interests at heart, talking about her as this complete commodity, and the film, I mean, um, completely hammers down the fact that Gabby is nothing more than than commerce. Yes, exactly. Well, I think one of the reasons why I'm interested in the film is that it appeals to two uh, long-standing themes and ideas that have preoccupied me for a long time. And one is melodrama, and the other, obviously, is woman as spectacle, woman as commodity. And the film brings those two rather, well, different, but not... Uh, uh, in any way contradictory uh, ideas together in this really wonderful hybrid form, if that makes sense to you. Mm. Oh, totally. So I've approached the film really from those two points of view, thinking of it uh, as its present tense story, which is the story of the film industry and precisely as you were pointing out, uh, the story of a young woman who is seen precisely, uh, is seen only as um, a commodity in an industry. And I think we can come back to this in a moment because I think it's very, very brilliantly and beautifully um, depicted. But also there's, in terms of her flashbacks, her memories, and her memories both of her family, her adopted family, and her double-doomed romance, uh, the film works as a melodrama. Yeah, I um, sorry, I, I, I always find with melodrama as well, it seemed to me, I think, I used to think it was kind of a, a vaguely dirty word, melodrama. It's a term, you know, people say it, you know, don't be so melodramatic in a kind of a conversational context and you always kind of think it means overacting and it I remember when I was first, when we got introduced to it at university the the, the the lecturers would say oh this is a melodrama and I'd instantly be like I mean when we watched Letter from an Unknown Woman they said oh here's a melodrama and we were like what you know a yeah. melodrama do we really and then once we kind of like dived into it I think it became and my appreciation for it certainly 
certainly increased, but there seems to be such a, I don't know if I'm going out on a complete limb here, but I always find European melodrama from that period, you could pretty much, the ending will not be a happy one. Whereas in the kind of the American melodramas we watched, things tended to be slightly more uh, cheery, I guess would be the word. The, the, the... Well, as Douglas Sirk used to say, the belief in the happy end was iron. <laughs> yeah. There was nothing you could do about it. In Hollywood, that is. Mm. Yeah. But I also think it's worth pointing out that the, this use of the term melodrama has really been naturalized and brought into currency by film theory and film theorists. So I'm not quite sure. I think it comes from a number of different origins, but people just started talking about movies that you could also think of as women's pictures, made for a female audience, uh, about women, love stories, families, dramas, and so on, as a particular kind of genre, often enclosed, often set in a house, often to do with contradictions of family relations, which are on the one hand supposed to be sublimely, sublimely happy and fulfilling, but then, as anyone knows who has the slightest uh, acquaintance with Freud, can also be the source of unhappiness, resentment, jealousies, Oedipal dramas, um, sibling rivalries, etc., etc. And I think that La Signora di Tutti kind of picks up on that uh, with its story of two families. Mm. and Gabby kind of in between uh, the two. The opening of the film, it kind of, it kind of threw me off at first because I, I thought it was going to be more about this uh, show business side of her career and her fame and glory, but that really plays a smaller part in the film. And it's rather about these relationships, as you're talking about, the, um, the failed love relationships in her life and how she can't seem to find lasting happiness uh, but men keep falling in love with her and it, it really just surprised me how the film opens with so much um, it feels like uh, she's this um, she's this famed actress but that is really a smaller portion of the film uh, it really takes a turn towards the more the more um, uh, private side of her. Yeah. I mean, I, I just find the thing about the opening of the film as well is that, in a way, it completely dehumanises her in the fact that all you, 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 all, all you see at the beginning is just her being spoken about. And like all great Italian films, there's a scene with men shouting at each other <laughs> as they're deciding what to do. You know, and you see kind of like these images of her being printed off. And when, well, by the time you do actually, obviously she's kind of lying on, on the gurney and she's having the mask put over it. And it just, it always seems interesting because obviously the film is about her, but really you don't see her as her until, I think it's about like 10 minutes into the film when we kind of, we get past that opening and you, you see her. And right from the off, she's, awful shows her as being completely different. I mean, visually she's completely different. I think it starts with her singing, doesn't it? And she's in a... Mm-hmm. 
in this in the school and you suddenly see her as completely different and then one of the things I, I love about kind of one of the reasons I do really like the film is that it takes its time to introduce her it doesn't seem to kind of rush into the story you're going to get all this backup of her being you see what she's become and the film kind of sets its stall out really in showing her that obviously the people the marketing people behind this film they know that she's a worthy commodity and they also know that kind of the image of her is massively important in terms of kind of the commerce behind it and it, it just kind of struck me out I think for the third time I watched it last night I was I, I remember sort of thinking it rarely have I seen many films that take that long in introducing the main character and seeing them as the main character you know you hear about her but you don't actually you don't see her for 10 minutes I think that's a very good point because uh, one of the striking things about the movie is how interested it is in modern technologies and so we have Gabby introduced first of all through the record player and then through the studio and the way that the camera movement in the studio kind of picks up the energy of the industry and the very beautiful way that uh, the cinematographer just lets the camera find its own rhythm. And in the hotel sequence, if you remember, the camera actually just goes through the walls of the hotel rooms. Uh, The cinematographer was called uh, Udobaldo Arato. You probably read about him. If you read the pamphlet in the Criterion disc, there's a very beautiful moment when Offels describes uh, Arato as having the eye of a Titian and the audacity of a Michelangelo. Mm -hmm. Uh, And a number of people have pointed out that Offels, who you were pointing, you were were commenting earlier, uh, Offels became well known for his camera movements and his crane movements in particular. But although Liebelei, his 1933 film, is a very fluid film, the flamboyance of the camera doesn't really emerge strongly until La Signore di Tutti in 1934. And it could have been the influence of Arato that um, had an impact, or at least actually allowed Offals to see what you could get away with hmm. if you just uh, uh, let the camera's movement uh, become a key part of your cinematic aesthetic. So I think that's one of the things that the film establishes at the beginning um, and its technologies. And then, as you also pointed out, the way that the technology is so identified with the image of the movie star, but actually when we first see her, she is a body lying unconscious as a result of a suicide attempt. So the first time we see her in, as it were, life, she is actually near death. Uh, And then we go back into the flashbacks and we see the young Gabby, et cetera, et cetera. Just go, on a technical point of view as well, what, what has amazed me going back and seeing his, his films is that you know, these were huge cameras. This isn't someone on a steady cam with a... No, you know, no. I mean, this, and that's what I think one of the things I found so impressive about them. 
um, especially um, letter from an unknown woman. But yeah, it's a strange one because when I first saw um, this film, it was a few years ago, and I remember not really having an idea as to where the story was going. It was always, it, it kind of surprised me a lot. And I think it's interesting because to, to, to talk about her father in the film, because he is a tyrannically scary person. Mm. And it always strikes me as the fact that when, when we, there's, there's a brilliant scene where she is being basically accused of, well, she's expelled, isn't she, for apparently causing someone to fall in love with, which seems ridiculously harsh no matter how you look at it. But the father's reaction to that, I find, is quite incredible because he doesn't sort of say, I'm going to go to the school and sort this out, what a disgrace. He goes on an absolute rampaging rant that it's completely her fault. And the thing that I find slightly strange about it is that he, he actually knows the reason why this has happened. And it's because I think he even alludes to the fact, he says something like, um, I don't, I don't, does he say she's a temptress or something like that? Or... She's dangerous and she doesn't yes. know it. Yes, exactly. And it, 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 it struck me as a really kind of... It always strikes me, actually, as a, a really kind of... Straight, you don't expect someone's father to say that. You know, you think... Like, you know, like I said, you think you'd be kind of down there sticking up for her. But no, he, he, un, he knows that this girl is... She's, she's the person who's causing these issues with these men. And it, that's always something which I find quite strange about the film and the way in which that scene is filmed because you could he, he could show the father with the aunt and the sister going crazy but he doesn't he keeps the camera on her throughout and you see her reaction and again it, it, it kind of takes me back to the film's opening where you see men talking about her mm. with right. her not really having any part to play in the scene yes and i think what you're pointing out here is uh the way in which offals understood as a director of melodrama, is a director who's as interested in problems, or even more interested, perhaps, in questions of masculinity and male authority uh, and its crises, as he is in women. So, in the other movies, um, for instance, to give an example, in Letter from an Unknown Woman, the seducer, Stefan, is contrasted with the military man who marries Lisa. And so Offals is constantly working with contrasts between masculinities, which goes back to his first big film, Liebelein. And we see this contrast with the father figures in La Signore di Tutti when the severity of the colonel and once again the fact that he's, uh, his imagery is grounded in the military, he's a colonello, is contrasted specifically with uh, Leonardo's seductiveness, his sexuality, uh, his um, readiness for affection. So these two kinds of father figures are set up in a contrast with each other, which raises a question in the film about fatherhood, masculinity, uh, and so on. 
And on the Leonardo side, there's his Oedipal rivalry with his son, Roberto, who's the first person to fall in love with Gabi, or the first of the family, as it were, to fall in love with Gabi. Um, if we see perhaps Alma, his mother, as the second, and then Leonardo as the third. Yeah, and it's strange because, I mean, she, she transitions from one family to the next. And I seem to recall when I first saw it, I thought the story was going to be just about her and Roberto. I was predicting some kind of Romeo and Juliet type of, 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 fil of film to happen. And then I seem to remember when um, the, the Count turns up and she, she walks down the stairs to him. And I suddenly thought, oh, my God, are we going in this direction? Is she going to fall in love with the father? And that, that was another point I seem to recall which completely threw me. I mean, Joachim, what are your kind of thoughts on that? I'm, I'm, I'm left wondering in my mind, because on the one hand, you have this girl who is, she's constantly searching for affection. I'm not sure she's searching for love, but she's more searching for a place of belonging. It seems like she talks about her mother in the beginning, that yeah. she was never present. And her father is really just this tyrannical figure. So it seems like she's searching for a family more than searching for love. Um, and that also is reflected in the fact that she kind of views Alma as her own mother afterwards uh, until she passes away. But on the other hand, I feel like what is her own role in all of this? Whether she's like a victim or more of a... Um, unconscious creator of her own doom and I'm, I'm not sure I've fallen down on either side but I feel like I found it I found it a bit difficult to feel much sympathy for this woman who time and time again gets into these situations and I've, I've read some uh, reviews that have described her as something close to a rape victim or something who is more the unwilling catalyst of the kind of self-destruction of these other men uh, and persons in a in a um, in a presence but and I, I granted she's not alone in all of this obviously the men involved have more than their own share of blame in this as far as the consequences uh, they are mainly responsible however she's like she's the character that we are asked to take pity on um, like she's being taken advantage of by these more experienced men or these men that are kind of choosing her fate. Yet I feel like she shares some of the responsibility in the fact that she never really has any agency of her own. She simply goes along with whatever these men want. She's she's kind of these this passive figure while all the men around her are these active figures. For me, it seems like she had several opportunities to kind of break ties with these men or simply push them away, but rather she's she's walking in the garden with Leonardo, the father, whilst his wife is ill and Roberto, the man she's supposedly involved with, is away. And it just comes across to me as a bit odd that we should feel more sympathy for this woman simply because she's... Or I don't know. She doesn't resist any of the attention given to uh, given by these men, uh, perhaps because of her longing for a given relationship. But 
I don't know. I don't know. I, I think I'm quite tempted to say that she's young and a little bit naive. Yeah. And I, I think there's a point in, I mean, uh, watching Letter from an Unknown Woman again, the, the one thing that got me about that film, I was like, Lisa, this guy is a douchebag. <laughs> stop seeing him. You know, stop obsessing over him. He, he, cause she, and she literally falls in love with him. She, 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 she walks into him, she's like, I'm in love with you. <laughs> and everything he does throughout that film is just awful. So he, he, you know, he just completely you, casts her so you have to realise that if if the girls were sensible and yeah. the men were all virtuous, we would have no story. Exactly, yeah. That's the, that's, the, mm-hmm. that's kind of the issue. I mean, if, if she was uh, like literally... If she went into uh, that situation and went, look, hang on a minute, this, this situation's ridiculous, I'm out of here. There is no film. I mean, that's the, the kind of the driving force of the narrative is this, you know, is her relationships yeah, with these guys. And I think that, I mean, I, I always see it, the fact that she's slightly naive mm-hmm. and she just kind of gets wrapped up in the moment and getting wrapped up in the moment and perhaps following those kind of impulses as opposed to really thinking about them is the issue yes but you have to realize as well that um that in one of the famous telephone calls telephone conversations of the film because it's a film in which the telephone figures quite a lot uh, she is the one who says to Leonardo that she's going away and she's never going to see him again. Mm. So she certainly does take a decisive uh, uh, move there. And and then she becomes the big star and he becomes the ex-convict tramp. And I often think that one of the more... Well, it, it's a sequence which you could say was over-melodramatic and played very melodramatically by the actor who was a theatre actor. The one where he's... Which is, again, one a, a sequence with such a beautiful camera movement that one cannot but think that Offal's meant us to feel a special emotion here. It's the sequence when Leonardo is walking around the foyer of the cinema when um, Gabby's film is about to be premiered. Mm-hmm. Do you remember? Yes, yes, yes. And the camera just follows him around and he looks at all the pictures of her. Uh, and there I think one's sympathy is, is more with him okay. uh, than with uh, anyone else. Uh, but that's the way the film plays it. I mean, the film... Uh, really creates a high point of uh, emotion through the movement of the camera, through the setting of the scene, through uh, Memo Benassi's rather melodramatic performance. Um, I think it's an extraordinary scene and and an extraordinary moment. Do you remember the one I'm talking about? Oh, no, definitely, Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, the one scene that gets me, I think it's a great kind of... Um, the one that gets me is where, she's dan- where she goes to Roberto's house for the first time and they're kind of, there's, she's dancing the waltz with him. And I think that's a great scene to kind of understand her as a character because she is this kind... You, know, you can see how much it means to the kind of the giddiness of it and as the camera comes kind of spinning around... It can, and I think that she, she stops dancing with him and she carries on spinning and you get this sense that mm-hmm. this is a, a young girl who's having the time of her life and you just go from that awful household with the father to this new household where everything seems a little bit more lively and you know, it's, 
I think what you're saying, Joachim, is that you know, she, she seems to kind of not... The, the role she's playing in these disasters, it seems a bit self, kind of, she would bring it for herself. I don't think that's why, and I think that scene for me has always done it. And the way the camera tracks with her, and you can see she's just smiling and having so much fun, that, that, that kind of set the tone for me as to how I felt about her, was the fact that she was kind of, she just kind of goes along with these impulses and she's kind of just trying to break away from the... the from the from the father figure and get away from that life and find something and the, the the obviously what we're saying is without these kind of schisms and these disasters there is no film if she does kind of just go along if she does put the blockers up and say no this is ridiculous there is no film and i think it's one of the things that i always feel well i feel tragically for her mm. because it just seems that she can't she she needs she what she needs is some form of stability, mm-hmm. and every relationship that you pick tends to you know go into a one disaster or the other. And I mean, this, and the other part that really gets me is when um, I think Roberto's telling the father that he wants to marry her, mm. and he stands up, and it's a scene of unbelievable tension mm. because. I always, the first time I saw it, I was expecting him to turn around and try and lie his way out of it or give some convoluted reason as to why she couldn't marry Roberto. And he simply says, no, and it cuts to the train. And it's really great economic filmmaking because that train escaping tells you everything about what has, has gone on. He's obviously told Roberto that he's in love with Gabby and they've just done a runner. From, to get away from it all and it sets the tone I think for the kind of the tragedy because she's moving away literally she's moving away from her family and everything that she knows and him as well and I think it comes back to the scene where what you're saying where he goes to the cinema to see her and you realise what he's, he's he's acting on impulse really and it's caused his ruin and I think that's the tragedy of the film which going back to that moment, I always feel, and we were saying you see him kind of destitute and you obviously get the build-up you see, I think he's done for embezzlement, isn't he, in the end or something like that, and how him falling in love with her has just completely ruined his life, but he can't help it. And I think that's the, the, the essence of the film, you know, it's people acting on impulse. Well, that's what melodrama is all about. But it's totally. also about circumstances and the constraints of circumstances and the psychological, the psychoanalytic and the competing forces, if you like, of convention and desire. Mm-hmm. What you might say is represented by the military man on the one hand and the seductive man on the other. And the other thing as well, I mean, watching it again last night, is the chance of this film. Like the, the, she goes, I mean, the first time she goes to Roberto's, she, she comes back home and then she goes back out again to meet him. And again, this is where I thought this kind of whole Romeo and Juliet love story would come in. And she's waiting for him and she sees him waiting in the car down the road. And then you learn that the, the car that drives past is actually the father. Mm. And it's like circumstance has played a huge part in this. Because if the father hadn't just happened to have been driving past at the time, things would have been completely different for her. And I think even Alma says, she, she, I, I think Alma says, um, oh, you know, Robert, she knows that Roberto was waiting for her. He said, oh, well, he, he couldn't just explain to her father that he was waiting for a girl. And it, it, I think he points that out to her. Roberto points that out at the end. He says what a different story it would have been yeah. if his yeah. father hadn't shown up at that particular moment. Hmm. 
It's also a sense of um, like a, a circular motif or a repetition of sort um, where not only visually where you have these scenes that you see Gabby spinning around and around like you were talking about Tom uh, with the dancing scene. Uh, you also have the, the camera spinning around and also my favourite scene where Olma's fallen down the staircase and Gabby, she enters the room and the camera follows her up the staircase like in a single shot that lasts about a minute or something but there are also plot wise there's very much repetition going on her kind of um repeating her relationships her doomed relationships again and again yes and repetition is very important to authors mm -hmm. I mean, you see it not only in the plot but things like the repetition of the her Gabby's face in the poster, each one kind of coming out one after the other mm. in sequence, or even the assistant director calling Dorio, Dorio, Dorio. You know, this kind of rhythmic repetition is very important for him. I think, um, with regards to uh, her relationship with Leonardo, um, perhaps if I'd been given more time for that because you were talking about economic filmmaking. I, on the other hand, feel like in one scene, she's sort of denying a kiss to him. And in the next scene, she's admitting that she loves him and wants to run away with him. And it's too abrupt a jump for me sometimes in this film where I feel like you have these changes that feel unmotivated for me or where I... You can't see the attraction. I mean, I, I would say, I mean, again, that's another trope of melodrama yeah. where I think if you think too much about it in logical <laughs> terms, uh, you know. It's not, going to, it's not going to make sense. Yeah, I mean, if, I mean, life is, I mean, God, I wish life was that simple. <laughs> it's like, but it isn't, you know, I mean, I, I mean, I, I know exactly what you're saying. I think it's one of the reasons why it, it kind of took me a while to kind of tune in mm. to the melodrama because people do fall in love the first time they see each other. And they do suddenly do things which, in the, if you pl apply real-world mechanics to it, you, it, it will never satisfy you mm -hmm. from a story basis. I think it's just you just have to go along with it. And you know, films, like, you know, they, they don't have 12 hours to show you. you, know, you know, it, it would be a different kind of cinema anyway. Yeah. I mean, a, 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 a good example, I suppose, is recently I've been watching the before films again. Mm -hmm. And... It, it, it was kind of the thing, thing that got me about the, the first one was, is that if Jesse and Celine suddenly, when they're about to get on the train, suddenly said, "Oh, I love you, I love you," it would it would ring completely untrue. But <laughs> if it was a melodrama made in that, that's exactly what they would do. Yeah. And it's because you know, applying real world, uh, yeah, sensibility to. It, I don't think it doesn't it doesn't serve it doesn't do any favors. And I mean, I, that's one thing I, I've just learned to do that. I mean, when I was watching Netta from an Unknown Woman again, she literally walks into him and goes, I love, I'm in love with him. <laughs> and it's like, you sort of think, how have you come to that conclusion? You know, especially as you get to know him even more, he seems even worse. But I, for the sake of, perhaps I've just got softer with age, but I mean, I was a, a wreck at the end of that film and certainly this one does the same thing. Have either of you noticed the mistake in this film? Yes, I have. And what, you tell me what part it was, because okay. I, I, I thought I was going mad at one stage. Yeah, because it's the scene where uh, Gabby and Roberto, they walk out of that room where yes. she's just fallen down or something. Yeah. Yes, yeah. And you can see the sound guy 
kind of no, backing, he's, he's, backing he's up. Got a, he's got a film, <laughs> right? And he turns to the camera. And I thought, is this film just broken the fourth wall? Because <laughs> he turns to the camera and he nods ever so slightly or he gives this kind of like slightly sheepish look. Yes. And then comes back. And last night I was going back, am I going mad here? And I was trying to work out what he was doing and I realised he's carrying a light to shine on them as they come back. Laura, did you have you noticed that before? I'm thinking of the scene when... Oh, no, it is Roberto. You're quite right. It is the scene when they're walking out in the garden. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think it's a sound man. I think it's someone with an extra light. Yeah. Yeah. He's got a fill light for them. I think that's what it's going to uh, be. Carrying a light to light, brighten them up as they're walking along. Yeah. But I was, I, 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 I was thinking, well, what's this guy doing? And I was waiting for him to come into the scene. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was really bizarre. And I was like, hang on a minute. I went back and yeah, it seems, I don't know. I, I was trying to think of the reasons why they didn't do another take, and I'm sure it's because they had no VT monitors, so they could quickly reverse things and, uh, and have a look. But yes, perhaps I mean it could be that they didn't notice it till the next day, and they just thought. I mean, in those days, when you weren't as it were watching the film obsessively over and over again, you might well not have noticed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was the thing. I mean, the other thing as well, I would know, I would just know about this film as well, is the scene where Gabby hears the music um, playing and she goes and smashes up the uh, the radio. Because mm. that, that was another scene that really got me, because uh, to my knowledge, I don't think Hubble's made any silent films. And I think he, he's certainly someone who, he knows the power of sound in cinema. Well, you're quite right about that, because um, he only actually... He was someone who'd worked in the theatre before, and he only became interested in working in cinema once it could record the voice and once the sound became synchronised. So sound was always one of his great interests. Yeah, and the thing that gets me about that sound, about that scene in particular, is like, because there's actually almost an intermission in the film, isn't there? It's kind of like it breaks and it's divided into two parts. And Mm. watching that again, it's... In that scene, it becomes increasingly more intolerable, the soundtrack, and it, get, it does get louder and louder and louder. And because um, I actually thought when, obviously, the first time I saw it, and it, was, it was actually just the soundtrack of the film, and then it suddenly becomes, obviously, it's playing on the radio. And there was, it, it, when it comes back to it, when she thinks she can hear it again, and it shows that inner turmoil that's going on in yeah. her, and I think this is part of the kind of the psychological breakdown that's going yeah. on. In, inside her, and but even when there's that, that scene, and it, it's quite a desperate scene where she runs back up the stairs again. And it, coming back to that kind of theme of repetition, where you have the stairs, and that's where this whole story's begun, where she first meets uh, Leonardo, and then it kind of inverses that because it's become this absolutely awful moment for her. And the butlers just standing there, and butlers are another thing which I've noticed in a lot of Opal's films. They seem to play quite a uh, prominent part, and he. He says something like, there, there is no sound in the house or something like that. And he, he says, we haven't had a radio in the house since the death of our poor, not so poor signora, yeah, our and poor he, lady. And what I've always read into that, especially having watched it again last night, was the fact that he's almost saying to her, well, thanks to you, basically, and <laughs> what, what you've actually made happen, that this is, this is the situation. But it, it just struck, strikes me. It's, it's, a, it's a painful moment watching her kind of go through that. And I, I watched the special features on this, and apparently 
often sort of like pricking her with a pin and things like that. And I was wondering if that was a scene in which he'd kind of... He, he, he apparently was like... No, pricking. this pin scene is the one at the end when she's talking right. to Roberto on the phone. Oh, right. So, so I, I was sort of wondering, is this one of the moments where she's been mildly tortured into sort of mm, mm. acting like that? But no, it was, it was a really quite a painful viewing, I found it to be, that sequence. Mm, mm. What's this yeah. pin scene? Uh, did, did he? It was when she's talking to Roberto on the phone at the very end, mm. and it gradually comes out that Roberto is married and has married her sister. Ah, yeah. And she wasn't conveying emotion. She tells the story herself, and she said that Offal's kind of crawled under the camera and pricked her with a pin. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, that's, that's one the, does. Uh, yeah, that's the uh, what's it, William Freakin school of uh, mm. getting your your actors to, to to behave in a certain way. But no, I mean, I, I would say definitely this is a film which, I mean, having seen it so many times and having watched, I've been on this awkward binge. I certainly think it's probably his best film that I've seen. Of, of the ones which I currently have available. I did really love Lola Montez, I have to say. Mm-hmm. And I think the thing I found about Lola Montez as well was it's, I, I've made a film, I've made a short film before with a massive wide angle lens and made it in scope, well, not, it wasn't shot on scope, obviously, but it was a wide, wide film. And God, it's hard. And the yes. thing about it is really tough to get your head around and you have to fill it and you have to, it makes you really, really think, and it's quite daunting. And what I found about Lone Montez is that he'd obviously kind of come from this making films in the same aspect ratio and gone that much. And I was so blown away by how he just used the frame and the space within the frame. Mm, mm, and he, yeah, he layers amazing. it as well. It, it really, I mean, it's a cinemascope film, and that is a massive, massive screen to fill. Mm, and mm. the, the accomplishment of it. And what struck me slightly a bit of tragedy, I mean, he died tragically young. He was 55 or something like that. Mm. And I remember, I remember watching, when, when I finished Lone Montez, I went back and I thought, God, I was so liked to have seen more films of him making. And it's his first colour film as well. That's the other thing I found quite incredible. It's 1955. Yeah. Colour's been around for a long, long time. And to be that technically proficient, it just sums up the tragedy. It's just such a tragedy that that film was so widely mm. disregarded. And mm. again, it's it's... That's what you were saying, Laura, about the fact that people only got to see these films once, and it's much when I was, I was using the example of Brian's Daughter, which I think is a brilliant film that got really trashed when it came out. Mm. It just made me think to myself, you know, what 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 didn't people see that we're seeing now? I don't know. Sometimes yeah. it, it, it well, just seems bizarre to me. Somewhere I've got a quotation from Offrol's. Oh, I can't find it. Of what he said. When the film was such a failure, one of his friends, who was a very close, very dear friend, I, I'll be able to transliterate it. It was his friend, uh, Jacques Natanson, and he wrote, he was a scriptwriter, he wrote, uh, he worked on the script of Lola Montez, and he says, very obviously, Max was hoping to create a masterpiece. He was inspired, possessed. A scruple stopped me from holding him back. Was I wrong? Doubtless I was. 
because of the brutal stupidity of certain critics, the general public was scared away. Offals was mortally wounded by this blow. With a sad smile, he said, I'll get my revenge in 20 years in the Cine Club. And then, retrieving his ability to laugh, he added, Unfortunately, I'll be dead in 20 years. Unlike the critics, he could see the future, but fate didn't give him even five years to see his prophecies fulfilled. Alas, he only had two. <laughs> and that totally sums it up as well. It's just, yeah. It just... But luckily... Luckily, there are people, there are the cine clubs, there are the people like you who are prepared to pick up great films in the future which were not understood at the moment of their release. And I wonder if the time, I don't know whether, I wonder if it was just kind of almost like flippant that people suddenly decided to turn on him for this film and perhaps it was the fact he was making a colour cinema scope picture. I don't know, it just seems totally... I, I don't know, it, it baffles me, really, it, it truly does. Well, and it's I, a very, uh, in fact, it's a very abstract film in lots of ways, and you have to deal with um, a, a lot of difficulties in the way that it's performed. It's very, very sophisticated, and there are very little compromises for... Um, the critics of the time. But just to go back to La Signora di Tutti, I mean, it's cheering that uh, La Signora di Tutti uh, was shown at Venice. It got a prize. Um, uh, Offals, of course, was very highly regarded for Liberlai, both in France and in Italy. Um, but the struggles that he had lying ahead of him in Hollywood were absolutely appalling. But I think that's a different story. Yeah, and he's, he's, I mean, he's one of those filmmakers as well. He has had, I mean, his, his life is quite incredible as well. Um, yeah. I mean, this is somebody who was, um, he was forced to flee twice, if, I, if, if memory serves, once from France and then, no, from Germany and then France. You know, and then he, it's... And then back to Europe from Hollywood. Yeah, and he, well, I mean, like, I mean, I was, I was talking to somebody the other day about, we talking about, like, Fritz Lang, and he, he went to Hollywood and made... He, he, he began working quite quickly off. That didn't happen with Offals, and it's... It, it, is it interesting? There's an interest. No, sorry, that's you. Yeah, I was just going to say it took off almost four years to get a film yeah. uh, after he'd arrived in Hollywood. But he was the last of the exiles to arrive, and there were a lot of them by then, and their careers were much more established than his was. Yeah. But what I think we don't see, and it might be interesting to try and see more of the films he made in France during the 30s because La Signora di Tutti is much the most famous of his 30s films. But yeah. he made an, an, a number of uh, French films during that period before he left for Hollywood. And um, quite a few of them are available uh, um, in French versions, but they're not subtitled, so it's difficult to, to follow them. Mm. Yeah, he, he feels that that kind of period seems like the kind of thing that, you know, clip... Um, Criterion do their Eclipse series where they kind of mm. focus on a filmmaker and they release just kind of you know, DVD versions of them. It seems that would be something, you know, definitely there seems to be a market there. But I mean, as I said, I mean, I, on the films I've managed to, I, I, I didn't realise I owned so many. I mean, I've definitely got all the Criterion ones and obviously this and that's from an unknown woman. But 
you know, there seems to be more. And there is, a, I would say as well, actually got the Spanish Blu-ray of Letter from an Unknown Woman, which does have, which, which is actually really brilliant as well. For some reason, I don't, I don't know why on earth you can buy it in Spain, but you can't buy it in England. But that's just beyond <laughs> me. But it's it's certainly uh, definitely well worth picking up. It's a great transfer. Mm. And the the Criterion Lola Montez as well. Um, yeah. It's absolutely stunning to watch. Actually, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful transfer. And ever so slightly, I mean, what what amazing about that that film was butchered in so many ways. It took a long time through it to kind of be kind of put back together again. So mm. the fact that the, the elements that they did find managed to you know, have done so well on it. The one thing I would say about it, I would love there to be a Blu-ray upgrade of this film. Yes. Um, okay. I think it, it, it's it's. Yeah, I, I, I hope that I hope it's something that Masters of Cinema get around to, and it's got a really interesting uh, visual essay on it as well um, that, that, that I found quite informative. And the um, t- t- I think his name's Tag Gallagher. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, that's right. Yeah, he, he, it's really interesting. But he does um, these other visual essays on the Criterion editions of the of um, Offal's film as well. They're really really informative. So yeah, definitely, I would I, I will put it on the list for upgrades. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you both very much indeed. It has been no, a uh, pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. Not at thank, all. Thank, thank you very you. much, Laura. It's that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Brilliant having you on. Thank you very much, much for doing that. Bye for now, oh, and many, many thanks. Thank, thank you, you, Laura. So that was our interview with Laura Mulvey and Tom. Um, I know for me this was a kind of a special deal, uh, like we talked about in the beginning of the episode, that she's such a huge figure. And um, I actually want to take this time to like pat us on the shoulder and say I'm proud of us. Yeah. Yeah, we did well. I mean, it was just to even have someone. I mean, and perhaps as well, I don't want to get too um, homoerotic on you there. You know, <laughs> but I mean, it wouldn't have happened if had it not been for you. I, I wouldn't have had the balls to. Uh, I don't make the first move when it comes to relationships. Um, and that's that's history's proven that. And uh, yeah, you know, for you to kind of uh, approach Laura and ask her to come on, uh, yeah, that's it was a big move. And uh, yeah, it definitely pulled off. And uh, yeah, well done for that one. Oh, thank you, thank you. Well paid off. So yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, I thought we could end this episode talking about the April releases that um, Eureka yes. announced a couple of days ago now. So the the first one is um, Kiyoshi Kurosawa's. Journey to the Shore. Now, Kurosawa, he's, he also has the Tokyo Sonata film in the collection, uh, and he's also most known for a 1997 film, Cure, which is like our Japanese thriller, which is uh, extremely good. Um, it's been a couple of years since I've seen it, but I seem to remember being like completely engulfed in that mysterious, uh, very unique film that he made there. Uh, have you seen any of his other work? I've only seen um, Tokyo Sonata, I've not seen Cure, but okay. having you said that, I will add it to my love film queue right now. Definitely do that. Um, so Journey to the Shore, it seems like it's uh, more in uh, line with like Tokyo Sonata in terms that it's more of a drama film. Um, it seems like it's a romantic drama film, um, which deals with sort of a ghost story. This is a, sort of a reinterpretation of a uh, of a ghost story of sorts uh, from what I could read I don't know the first thing about yeah. it so yeah I mean but I, I was saying at the end of the year episode actually that I would love there to be more modern yeah more, more, yeah. more recent releases in the collection so certainly yeah, they kind of break my mind in that respect so yeah don't know anything about it I'll gladly you know yeah check it out definitely debuted at uh, the Cannes Film Festival in 
uh, last year and also uh, part of the uh, World Cinema section for Toronto Film Festival. So looking forward to this one. But up next, we have a film that I'm really excited for. Probably, I went through like this um, this period where I watched a lot of conspiracy movies uh, with uh, Clute and with um, The Insider and Marathon Man. And I also watched Three Days of the Condor, Sidney Pollock's film. And I love this film, actually. It's, it's such a good uh, Robert Redford film. And Faye Dunaway, she looks awesome in this film as well. I saw it ages ago. And I was I, I, probably similar kind of thing. Really, I went through a bit of an obsession with seventies thrillers, and um, hmm. yeah, I remember seeing it. I've been quite taken with it as well. Actually, I've actually got. I, I, I don't know if it's the what you call when you record something on Sky, but it's not. No. We, don't, we don't tape anymore, do we? I've recorded. I, I suppose would be the word. I've recorded Clute actually, so I'm, I'm quite looking forward to seeing that. Cause I haven't seen that again in a while. But yeah, three days of I remember being quite taken with it, and I, it was always. Um, I always thought Sidney Pollock was a really underrated filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Me and, as well. And uh, it was, yeah, I, I, rem- I don't remember Faye Dunaway um, so much in it, but I definitely remember the, the brilliant um, Robert Redford performance in it. And it had a really good score as well, I seem to recall. So, okay. yeah, I'm quite, again, um, it's one of the ones that kind of come out and gone out of my consciousness. And when they kind of sent through the blurb saying it was going to come out on Blu-ray, I was getting pretty, um, pretty excited for that one. Yeah. Um, I seem to remember, like one of my favourite uh, Sidney Pollock films was uh, Jeremiah Johnson. Yes, um, I, oddly enough, as well, um, I went to go and watch The Reverend um, a, a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. A film which I wasn't particularly that taken with, I have to say, but okay. it did remind me of um, Jeremiah Johnson yeah. in many respects, and I hadn't seen that. Um, for years actually until I picked up the Blu-ray and I think I watched it over Christmas actually and I thought oh this is actually really really good and mm-hmm. uh, yeah it still looks pretty amazing as well yeah and I even like the way we were Barbara Streisand and I'm not, I'm not even gonna I know it's a Barbara Streisand film and, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah I still even I still really like that as well yeah special features uh, looks pretty slim um, a booklet included um, but um, and the I'm, I'm, what do you think of the cover for this one? Um, I actually quite like it. Maybe it will grow on me. I think it's uh, like the font. Uh, I'm not quite sure how it uh, sort of gels with the movie. Uh, I can't yeah, I think that as well. There's a really good. There's an, the original poster as well for Three Days of Corner is pretty amazing. Okay. Um, definitely check that out. It's kind of like got kind of a pinkish hue to it, and you know some creepy looking guys. Yeah. Thing, but yeah, I'm, I'm definitely definitely looking forward to watching it. Yeah, this will be spine number one twenty eight and will be released um, on a dual format edition on the eleventh of April. So, mark your calendars. Up next, we have probably one of the biggest releases of the year in terms of master cinema and in terms of home video entertainment in general. I would say uh, it is Zigavertov's Man with a Movie Camera. And other works uh, by Zigovertov as well. Yeah, well, this has um, we were we were saying before, weren't we? Like, you know, how, what this packet this this package being like? And I was waiting out buying the BFI um, version of this film, and now I know I'm going to have to get both because they're both loaded with brilliant special features. But some of the ones on the BFI ones aren't on this one, mm. and it's a film which I kind of I, I, 
I can watch it so I can watch it repeat over and over, and I just I love finding out more things about it. So I cannot wait for this one. It's I think it's the marquee release I think for the year for me that I'm looking forward to most. Yeah, definitely. Um, it is a 2K restoration, and it will be a four-disc uh, dual format release, um, uh, which will be released on the 18th of April. Uh, it will be spine number 134. Uh, and it will also feature, I think it was four other little scene films by Ziggy Vertov. So, greatly looking forward to this one. Definitely, and the documentary that looked really amazing as well. So. Yeah. Was it also, uh, I think it was an um, audio commentary um, by Adrian Martin. Yeah. So, always good stuff. So, uh, and the packaging looks like, it looks like it might be... Um, what do you call it when there's a, like a sleeve packaging? Yeah, kind of, a kind of box type thing going on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And finally, we get Bernardo Bertolucci's epic masterpiece, uh, 1900 Nova Senso, uh, spine number 135, uh, released on uh, 18th of April uh, on a Blu-ray edition. And it looks to be quite a decent release, actually. This is uh, like the notorious long film that I've yet to see, so... Have you uh, seen this one before? Yeah, I've seen it and I love it. Um, yeah. The only thing that's making me twitchy about this, and I need to double check, is the cinematographer. I can't remember if it's Vittario. Hang on a bit. Let me just... Vittario Storaro. Yes, that's yeah. the one. He has a rather unfortunate way of going back to his films and doing some, quite frankly, terrible um, mm-hmm. reframing monstrosities um i mean i don't know if you remember the, the apocalypse the first one pocket phone came out on dvd that was reframed and then he did um the last emperor and th- that's another one that he just absolutely butchered and i just hope he hasn't got his hands on this and done something with it because he just I, I, he just needs to be kept away from any form of tampering with films yeah. <laughs> the original running time was uh, five hours and 17 minutes and this is 315 minutes. Mm-hmm. So that should should mean... Uh, and this was probably the US cut, so uh, adjusting for, like, UK frame rate in terms of... And US frame rate, I think I think we're good. I don't, yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I think it should, it should all be there. I mean, I've, yeah. I've seen it once before, um, and I, really, I was really quite taken with it. Um, mm-hmm. God knows how this film got made. It's just beyond me. I mean, Berto Bertolucci must have seriously had some sway at the time. But, I mean, the Ennio Morricone score is absolutely brilliant as well. And this. Yeah. It's, it's well worth picking up. I, I totally love it. So, yeah, I can't wait for that one, to be honest with you. It's another... I, I, was, I was really surprised, actually, when I saw that. Um, and, okay. again, it was a film that comes falling out of my sort of consciousness, I suppose, having not seen it. And I, I, it was one of those where I, I hadn't even thought about seeing it out on Blu-ray. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a... It's a an interesting film and um it's a bit of a you, you definitely need your intermissions in yeah. that but um kind of perhaps if you see it as more vocal perhaps sometimes i think if films are that long you might be best off spreading it over a couple of days just to sort of let your mind kind of recover a little bit i don't know but i mean i i i i, I think i went into it kind of thinking like this is a uh uh more like a mini series if it is the, if three a 318 minute cut then it is divided into two very distinct parts anyway so yeah yeah it is great and the, uh, I love the cover for this one yeah uh, I do as well it's really nice yeah okay so uh, those were the releases that we had to uh, 
that we had to cover before we end this episode. So we'll be back soon. I noticed that you released um, you released an episode today on the twenty four frames cast. I did, yeah, and I just want to thank. Oddly enough, I, I've been kind of had a had a bit of a backlog, and I've had quite a lot of emails and tweets and messages from people over the past three months saying what was going on and was it coming back? And I kept saying to people, yeah, 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 it's coming back, it's coming back. And I just, I sort of went, I got an email about two weeks ago and it was, I suddenly felt like really guilty. And I sort of like, right, I'll get my arse in gear and get these. So and um, yeah, the feedback's been really great. So thank you for everyone for keeping that going. Honestly, it's so nice to hear. So I've definitely got, I've got so many shows that are half recorded or I just haven't. They just need a little bit of tweaking and stuff like that. So, I will be releasing my best of 2015, and I, I know it's almost coming up to March, but I had to go back and watch a few films again mm. and make my mind up about them. And I've still not made my mind up about them, so I'm just going to record <laughs> the the top ten that will be coming out. Will be very much a, probably might change as soon as on on second viewings. I still okay. can't work out if Ex Machina is any good. I think it is. It's really good. <laughs> I can't remember. I can't work out how good it is. Though. This is my problem. But, and I don't know. I still don't know if I'm going to have Force Awakens in my top 10. Yeah. It's a tough one. It's tough doing this <laughs> top 10 because I'm, I'm dithering about it and I need to be a bit more decisive. We can release a revised edition later on. So. Yeah, and I can't work out what my favourite film is yet. It's a toss up between two of them. Yeah. So, yeah, we, we'll see. Well, will we find out uh, news about the 24 Frames cast? Yeah, um, you can find me on Twitter at 24framescast. Um, that's probably the best place, or 24framescast.blogspot.com. Uh, and you can follow us at uh, moccast.blogspot.com on Twitter or Facebook. Just search for Master Cinema Cast, and you will probably find us pretty quickly. Uh, please send us a line uh, if you have any thoughts or comments about the show today or the show in general. And uh, we'll be back on the feed uh, soon again. So until next time, thank you and goodbye. Bye.